Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. If you enjoy the show, don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a decent review. We also have a couple of events coming up that I wanted to make sure you are aware of. The first is the Global Reputation Forum that is taking place in Oxford on July the 3rd. This event is all about what good and bad reputation means for organisations. There are no communication speakers at this event. Our speakers are journalists, politicians and CEOs. The second event I wanted to flag is our annual Future of Influence event. This was a sellout last year and I reckon the programme is even stronger in 2018. Both events are on the homepage of prmoment.com. OK, plugs over. This week on the PR Moment podcast, I'm pleased to welcome the UK Managing Director of Golan, Bibby Hilton. Bibby has spent the last 16 years, four at Red and 12 at Golan, working in consumer PR. She is proof that if you want to end up as the MD at a big agency, you are far more likely to get there if you stick at the same firm than if you twist and frequently change jobs. She has overseen huge changes at Golan. When she started there, it was a small firm in London. Now it's one of London's biggest. Bibby also oversaw Golan's change from a normal agency structure to a specialist structure where all staff operate in specific teams, namely strategists, creators, connectists or catalysts. Bibby is a self-acclaimed, rampant feminist and a passionate supporter of the need to close the gender pay gap in public relations. Bibby, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Thank you. Bibby, how come you've stayed at Golan for so long? <laughs> I know, it does seem unusual when people move around so much. Um... I guess it doesn't really feel like I've been at the same agency in all of those 12 years. It, it sort of feels like I've worked for lots of different companies. I mean, you, you talked about it when I joined. We were about 20, 25 people, very much B2B specialist. Um, and in that time, I've had lots of different roles and challenges. I've been really lucky. I've had uh, great bosses in the form of Matt Neal and John Hughes, who are current You have CEOs. to say that. Right? <laughs> no, they are genuinely great. I've worked with them a very long time, very long time. Um, so I suppose I've never really had the chance to get bored or kind of get itchy feet and I think maybe different to a lot of other networks um, I have a lot of autonomy in the office that I run in London so you know you talked about being a rampant feminist I've, I've had the <laughs> opportunity to pursue initiatives which I think you know are great for our business but things I also feel personally very passionate about and got quite a lot of freedom um, you know to pursue those things um, that I really care about so that's probably why I've stayed for so long. But is that is that a Golan thing or a you thing do you think or a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. Okay. I think that um, Golin is very much a real people-centric business. I mean, like many businesses, obviously, in our, in, in our industry, it's all about the great people. And um, so for a really long time, we've been very, very focused on building a really progressive brand. And that goes right back to our founder, Al Golin, who was a, a real pioneer. Um, so I think that's probably been a good cultural fit with the things that I really believe in. And then, you know, as taking over as MD, I've kind of had the autonomy to build on that in, I guess, my own way, but also a way that's quite specific to the UK market and some of the things that have been happening here as well. OK, before we delve into the detail of, of your story and I guess Golin's as well, um, PR is, is is one of those sectors that is, is undergoing, possibly like most sectors, is there's huge change going yeah. on in the se- in the industry at the moment. Just taking a you know staking around from 16 years ago to, to now, wh- where are we? What what what's, what are the, the the biggest changes that you've seen? Um, 
I mean, it's funny, lots of us <laughs> kind of joke about this when we started out, you know, faxing press releases, yeah. you know, social media didn't exist. Um, someone sent around a brilliant thing on LinkedIn. It was like, you know, you, you knew you grew up in PR in the 90s and talking about spray mounts and binding, I think, was one of the kind of key transferable skills. So I think... The methods and channels have changed. Do you, but miss, do you miss the spray mount? I miss the spray yeah. mount. I think we're all addicted to that. Um, I think the methods and channels have changed and lots of people you know, talk about great change, dramatic change in our industry. But I actually think the fundamentals haven't really changed at all you know since the beginning of of what we do you know we talk a lot now influencer marketing is kind of you know the the hot topic and has been for a while um but actually i would argue that's what we've always done it's always been about working with influential individuals it's always been about telling stories it's just that now we might do it using video whereas before it was you know more focused on the written word or or a fax that no one was ever going to read and and with our positive cap on you we'd like to think that that's why the that the sector is in a good place right now and, and there's lots of potential to grow and do more interesting work and all that type of thing. Absolutely, I think so. I think it's it's never been a, uh, a kind of more interesting and um, better time really for earned media. Um, and I think that, you know, we're getting a lot more attention now from marketeers who really want to expand their presence and influence in earned media. So, yeah, I would agree. Do you think we're doing a good job in, in that? Using the, the the using that potential fully, or do you think we're? What would you give us out of ten? As, as an <laughs> leaving Golan aside, what do you do? You think we're doing? A, are, we, are we taking advantage of that 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 positioning we have, or are we are we losing ground or potentially market share to our our marketing and and advertising peers? No, I think I think we're doing well, and I think that you know you're seeing that in a lot of the integration that's that's happening in the industry. Um, I think that. The key thing is about earned and paid working hand in hand. I think that with everything that's happened, the kind of recent news stories around um, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, that that is going to have a little bit of an impact in terms of trust around what we do and um, particularly social as a channel. But I think that it has really changed. I think there is, you know, we've moved forward a huge amount, but I still think there's a lot of opportunity for us to um, integrate further, definitely. Okay. Um, I suppose moving on from that, you, you were responsible for the rollout of Golan's specialist structure in 2010. Um, I suppose, first of all, just, just give us a bit of context as to, to what that was all about yeah. to any listeners who weren't um, familiar with it or aren't familiar with it, I should say. Uh, and what were your lessons from doing that? So in terms of what our model is, I mean, it's it's been about six years now, um, been quite copied by many other agencies. But what we decided um, back in 2010, that the increasing complexity of the world we operate in, that that's kind of you call it the normal agency model I'd call it the generalist agency model where um, you generally do a bit of everything be that you know running big clients through to um, creative development through to media relations everyone's kind of doing a bit of everything in a generalist model and as you tend to move up that model in the hierarchy uh, traditionally you have to stop doing some things you might be very good at such as uh, media relations typically um, and start becoming more of a business person to move up in the hierarchy and in this more complex world we felt that a finding those people that are brilliant all-rounded generalists is very very hard and we needed people to have that depth of skill set um and secondly that it was 
kind of crazy that someone who might be a brilliant media operator and brilliant media strategist effectively has to sort of stop or downgrade those skills in order to become more senior within a typical agency. And so we moved um, to this specialist model um, built around four specialist communities, which you talked about. So I guess akin to a typical advertising agency model. So strategy, creative, connectors with media specialists and then catalysts to the kind of uh, client service plus that brings it all together so for us it was a fundamental change it wasn't a case of just hiring a couple of creative directors and we we took that change through the organization globally um, in a matter of months and um, you know that's become our kind of founding basis and we've built the agency off that over the last six it's years. It's one of those things when you hear about you going yeah that makes sense but I suspect the, the practical realities of implementing it were, were pretty tough going at least in, uh, initially anyway. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of operational detail involved yeah. in, in making that shift because at the time, you know, we're moving large numbers of people from one job description, if you like, to a new one. And, and, um, and was there much resistance? Did people say, actually, I quite like being a journalist? Was that, or, was it, or did people want to specialise? Not as much as you would think. Clearly, okay. we were really prepared for that. And, um, you know, that's hard for those of us who had been working for many years in this industry to suddenly sort of pivot mm. from what you had been doing. Um, we were expecting that to be a challenge, but we sort of went through a, a kind of Harry Potter sorting hat process, if you like. And what was really surprising is that majority of people, you know, bar maybe a handful, really recognised that specialism that they had in themselves. So most yeah. people were kind of saying, you know what, actually the bit of my job I love so is perhaps, creative. Right. So subconsciously they yeah. kind of wanted to do it anyway. Yeah, and in some cases yeah. more consciously. Right. They kind of knew that, right. I don't know, maybe writing was their weaker skill or budgeting. <laughs> so maybe, they, maybe they'd actually done that. They'd been, they sort of evolved into that role anyway, yeah. but the, the, the label had the label was what was changed, not the actual role yeah. potential. I don't know. Yeah. So we found with most people there was a kind of obvious specialism that they moved into. And obviously now, six years on, we hire against that model. Yeah. So um, you know, it's fair to say it's not for everybody working that model, but it has enabled us to hire people from all different backgrounds. You know, now we're equally as likely to hire someone who's maybe been working in a management consultancy as from another competitor agency. Um, So it's created, I guess, a group of people from more diverse backgrounds. And and you'd say that, would you? You, You've got got a more diverse uh, set of employees than you had six years ago. Definitely. I would say that pre-moving to this model, then, you know, traditionally we'd be hiring from, you know, from other agencies or in-house. Okay. So it made me think when um, when you first started talking there that the... It's an over... Um, talked about line, but but talent has become a, a growth limiting factor for most agencies. Yeah. Um, so although I, I guess there were some some fundamental reasons for doing it in terms of, of client service, potentially actually it was it was about trying to make finding people more a more simpler process because the, the generalists you said were so hard to find that it's it's because trying to find people who can do all of those things is you're making that 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 talent, that recruitment search, so much more difficult than if you try and find people who can specialise in one of those four areas, presumably. Have you found that? Has has talent finding become a a, a simpler, quicker process, or is it still still tough going? So there's a few questions in there, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't disagree that, you know, the talent market has changed dramatically, you know, through my career and... Um, I think that there is a real need. I mean, not just linked to, to our model. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I think that that generally it is 
a very, very tough, very competitive market for talent. I think a lot of that is driven by the high cost of living in London now. That's kind of, you know, had definitely had an impact on, on the pool of talent available and the cost of that talent. So I think that we are quite interested in looking for talent from different kinds of places. And our model enables us to do that because we don't, you know, we can hire someone five or six years into their career. And because of the way we're set up, we are looking for people with brilliant, great, creative minds. It doesn't really matter to us if they don't have that background of working in an agency structure because we're not expecting them to do that full-rounded skill set. We right. want someone who's maybe a great analyst or you know has been working on creative but doesn't have to be in a kind of purist agency perspective. Um, so, yes, I think that gives us more flexibility, but really what drove it originally was not a talent need but more about what we're delivering for our clients and doing better work um but it has meant that we've been able to find talent from different places and we have lots of initiatives that are focused around that because i think that is very important okay um you recently elected president of women in pr <laughs> so congratulations thank you um but as i uh, you're, you're, you're passionate about um women's rights and and decreasing the um the gender pay gap um but as a successful female md um, more widely, do you believe that there is there is still a lack of opportunities for women in business? Um, I mean, yeah. When you there was something I read a few weeks ago where there were you know there are more CEOs in the FTSE 100 called Dave than there are women. <laughs> um, so, so, so embarrassing! That, isn't it? <laughs> it's just unbelievable stat. It is, isn't yeah. it? And you know, and that's just one small example that you kind of laugh wryly at, but it is quite depressing. Yeah, so, it's terrible. Um, yeah. There clearly is, and I think that a lot of that is legacy. I think, though, that you are seeing a real tide change now. And I think that, you know, we're, what, two weeks after the reporting deadline for gender pay gap data. Um, yesterday, you had the Investment Association who were actively targeting businesses in the FTSE 100, saying, you know, why aren't you hitting your government target in terms of um, female directors? So there is a lot of activism from a lot of groups saying, you know, we need to make change. We need to create the right workplace for more gender balanced um, workforces. So I think that it does feel like there's there's a real shift. And I don't think there's ever been a better opportunity to sort of say for women now to ask for that promotion, that pay rise, yeah. go for that leadership role. It must be monumentally d- frustrating. Though. It's one, of the, one of those as a, as a bloke, you find it really embarrassing to talk about. It's just like, how can that be? It's, what, what, when you say legacy, what... what you know, it's probably a list as we could talk all day about what mm. what, what are your what are you thinking when you say that phrase legacy? What do you what are those elements there that you think contribute to that 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 lack of opportunity for women in as CEOs of big business? I think one of the things around the gender pay gap and why it exists is there isn't you know it's it's happened over a very long period of time. Um, so it's very hard for companies to correct really quickly. I mean, there, there are some simple changes, and we can talk about that in a minute, that, that businesses can make. But it's lots of little, often unconscious actions um, by lots and lots of people that happen over a period of time that have caused that gap. I mean, clearly, um, the fact that women have done historically and continue to do the majority of caring, not only for children, but for elderly parents is accepted as being the main contributing factor because you take time out from your career um, for caring. And but then the stats back that up. I mean, that's, they do, you know, yeah. That, that would 
but okay, so that's a that's a. And you you know you might it's be one out. of those topics. There's so many pieces of research. Yeah. The more you read, the almost the more confused you get. I find it's it's. But okay, that would that would be your conclusion. Having I'm sure read more about it than I. <laughs> that's accepted as one of the key causes okay. of the gender pay gap, and that's why trying to get more equality in sharing that caring at both the kind of younger end and the older end um, is believed to be kind of one of the critical um, but that requires you know huge social and cultural change you know government are trying to drive uh, take up shared parental leave and I think it's been about two percent so far so um, they've just launched a new ad campaign so um, yeah it has happened over a long period of time and I think with the the data that's been reported on gender pay gap is accepted by most businesses that actually even those taking major steps to address that gap for next year's data in many cases that it will get worse before it gets better because one of the things you do is you hire in um, more women at a junior level to try and redress the balance in the organization but that then skews your salary data and you have to wait while they develop and train up because there aren't enough women at a, at a leadership level to go mm. out and hire. I mean, I'm being very simplistic. But, but can't you, I mean, but it, I mean, it comes on, it's such a complicated <laughs> issue, but the, um, the, the key bit is, is, is women returning to work post having children, isn't it? And, and making that process as easy and as simple as possible. Uh, and, and I don't know, potentially as a, on the basis they've had a few years out yeah. of, of their career trying to turbo boost that career. I don't, I don't know, but that's, Definitely. is that the... Returnships um, is accepted as a, a key driver to help close, close the gender pay gap. Um, and I think in our own industry, it can play a really important role because we know there are a lot of women. Um, I mean, if you look at the kind of um, demographic in in say, the last PRCA census in 2016, we're about two-thirds women up to about board director level, and then that drops to a third women. So you see this kind of classic curve or a kind of drop-off around that mid-career level. And what age are we talking now? So I don't know specifics on age, but, but surmising anecdotally, kind of early, mid-30s. Okay. So it's classic age when people decide yep. to start a family. Yeah. Um, and and so returnships, I think, can play a really important role in, um, you know, helping women and, and men now, of course, you know, that is increasingly happening um, to get back into our industry after they've taken a family career break. It's an odd, but there's a few of those returnship schemes around. Mm. And I, I when I've looked at them, I thought, brilliant. Yes, this mm. is fantastic. This is exactly what we need. But the, the truth is, unfortunately, they haven't scaled as as we would all like, have they? And I, I just wonder why that is. Maybe it's just that it's early days and we need to all get behind it and promote it more. I, I don't know. But it's a, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, that, isn't it? That it hasn't quite worked as well as it might. Yeah, I think there's there's been... You know, there is growing momentum behind returnships. Um, you know, government are really focused on this now. Um, I think there's been two main challenges. The first one is about reaching that talent in the first place because once you lose that talent from our industry or any other industry, they're not in a kind of handy one group or Facebook community that you can go out and talk to them. They become very dispersed. So it's quite hard to reach them in the first place. It's very labour-intensive, certainly the... The scheme that's run by um, Amanda Phone and Liz Nottingham, the Back to Businessship scheme, I know there's a huge amount of time that goes into, you know, finding that talent um, and communicating with them. And then the second part is on the employer side, because people sort of like the concept of a returner, um, but I think that they still find it hard to overcome 
the fact that their CV looks different and, you know, they might have been out for X number of years. I think there still is a kind of bias maybe towards that um, and something that we need to overcome. And then I guess the more people that have a positive experience of hiring a returner, that will that will help. It sort of needs its own PR campaign, really. Yeah. I wonder, is it a is it a problem that we can't find those mums or is it a problem that they don't necessarily want to return to public relations? It's a, you know, I'm not suggesting you, you have some stats for that, but it, it, it's an intriguing thought, isn't it, that having having had children, you know, maybe maybe public relations as a sector isn't isn't appealing to those to those mums in a, in a way maybe marketing does because I yeah. think the stats on returnships are better for marketing than they are for PR. But I, I don't have a cause for that. I'm just discussing the you know, the trends behind it. Yeah, and I would say that the stats are different different between marketing and PR. I think that there is. Um, a perception which is definitely grounded in reality in some organisations that you can't have a client-facing role and manage that and get good balance no. with the demands of, of family life. And I think that there are still many organisations in our industry that just downright, you know, don't accept flexible working terms and not supporting that and not championing it at a leadership level. So there's too much talk and not enough action. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, and I think that you know, flexible working, championing flexible working to me is absolutely critical to, you know, avoid us losing that talent at the point when they may be returning from maternity leave. But I also think it goes earlier than that. You know, increasingly now I'm seeing people in their 20s who might be years off, men and women, years off, um, thinking about having a family, asking for flexible working, asking what our policy is, um, being much more open that they want to have a lot more balance. And I think that, you know, we all are going to need to adapt to that. Yeah. Um, it's not just about working parents anymore. I mean, even the, the moral and ethical elements out of it, just from the supply and demand on the labour side. Absolutely. You, if you don't offer flexible working, someone, someone else, else will. will. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it, I think it's good for the business. You know, um, we've got a creative director in our business who, uh, you know, has Fridays off, doesn't have kids, but just because that enables them to pursue other things and actually when you're a creative business it's good for your people to be outside the office and having yeah. you know other experiences beyond the four walls of the office okay so it's always interesting to go into the, the specifics of that but what what do public relations what can public relations i suppose public relations firms do mm. to, to make i suppose flexible working easier um on, on the first on the first side of it is it is it a technology thing is it a flexible working thing you know what what are the because you guys are probably further down this, this this road than most, but what have you found the most successful? I think the the key is to start doing it, and I think you've got to champion that at a leadership level. Whether you have the leader, okay. of... so I, I someone like you who's just, just create a, a role model in in effect of a of a leadership person who's who's gone to have children and come back and that type of yeah. Ideally, and not everyone has somebody who wants to do that in their organisation, yeah, okay. but whether you are, you know, whether you are, I guess, leading by example or simply just leading and saying, you know, we want okay. to create a flexible um, workplace, we're championing it, we're being really open about it. I think for too long, one of the, one of the issues is, you know, women and men feeling that, you know, if you need to go and pick the kids up, you've got to kind of, you know, sort of scurry out the back. And actually, you know, we really encourage everyone to be very open and assertive about it because, you know, we trust our people, they're going to get their work done. So I think, you know, you've got to leave from the front, really champion flexible working, have proper, proper flexible working policies in place. I think that um, 
it's also important to advertise roles as being open to flexibility from from the beginning. And you, you talked before about people returning. One of the big challenges is finding roles that, you know, if you are looking for a new role that is open to flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of women get maybe stuck in a role because they don't want to give up the flexibility they have and they're scared that they won't get that in a new role. So um, I think advertising all roles as being open is important. Okay. Um, and then, you know, recruitment is working with recruiters who are going to give you candidate lists that include returners, include um, flexible workers. You know, people like PR Network and F1 recruitment do a really good job on that. And I think the whole recruitment piece really needs to change as well. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Technology obviously plays a really important role. You don't need to be in the office to get your job done. Uh, but presumably recruiters will... Uh, it's supply and demand to an extent on that. If you, if you say what you want, they'll they'll give you what you've asked for to an extent so you need you need to be clear that you're open to returners and all that type of stuff and then Definitely. They'll, they'll be more it's a virtuous circle is it yeah. i suppose i mean yeah, yeah okay. absolutely right. um one of the things i when looking at the, the gender pay gap you always there's been a lot of talk within public relations about the gender pay gap and obviously within wider society as well um but clearly as pr as a as a female um, well, we have a, a female, I don't know, dominated mm. um, uh, sector, but you, you know what I mean. There's probably sixty, sixty-five percent women, so yeah. depending on what stats you, you take. As uh, you take, um, what can we do as a, a sector to, to reduce our, our gender pay gap, and I suppose therefore become a an example sector on this? Do you think? Um, well, I think lots of things we talked about already. So championing flexible working, advertising roles for flexible So it's the same hours. sort of stuff. Same sort of stuff. Okay. I think that it's also important that we retain that talent as and when they do go and have families. Um, so, you know, things like buddy programs, um, you know, maybe with a woman who's a few months ahead of you. So when you come back, because I think, you know, in my personal experience, returning to work, um, with a small child is a really hard thing to do and I think it's making sure that you have that kind of we kind of call it a kind of good re-entry I guess back back to the business um, and an ease in ease out programme it's right. lots of small yeah. things okay. I think that make a really big difference um, the other thing that I, I think you know and certainly women in PR is kind of actively um, championing is that we need to stop asking at interview what are you earning? And change the question to be, what's your salary expectations? And actually in New York, they recently passed a new piece of legislation effectively banning that question from from being asked because one of the interesting... We've talked a lot about the gender pay gap in relation to um, women having families or returning from maternity, but actually there was some research done by The Works earlier this year which showed that there can be a 10K pay gap as early as three years into mm-hmm. a woman's career. Um, so that's, you know, in most yeah. cases, well before you're, you're thinking about starting a family. And so I think that it's important we change that question around salary so that you're not taking a gap with you as you move to your next your next role. Yeah, I mean, that stat just throws the whole children yeah. thing as the, the, the central reason for this out the window, doesn't it? Mm. So, you know, I, I just find I can't. It's one of those stats that I, I just don't understand it. You see, I can't understand how that happens in terms of the, the, just the legalities of it. Do you see what I mean? I can't. I mean, what's your what's your justification? I mean, I know not personal justification, but what, why do you think that happens even at that early stage of the career? Why, why is there a pay gap there? Again, I think it can be lots of small unconscious um, actions that that can lead to that from the employer or from the employee or from all 
parties involved, you know, the recruiter, right. um, you know, it can be you've got a male, female graduate, maybe at that first stage in, in entering the industry, you know, he negotiates a salary, she takes a salary that she's offered. And then already you could even have, you know, a gap of a, a couple of thousand and then, you know, so yeah. on and so on, which is why it's kind of unconscious bias training for hiring managers, changing the question we ask around salary and, and instead using really robust benchmarking, having more responsibility as employers, which we'll have to now with the gender pay gap mm. data to ensure that, you know, we're benchmarking, we're checking for any discrepancies, um, etc. Well, I'm just surprised that hasn't already happened. I mean, it just seems, you know, in companies of any size, you know, if I've got two account execs and one of them's on X and one of them's on X plus 20%, I, I, a, I can't justify that. B, I'm pretty sure that's going to get out at some point because people talk. I, I'm just, I, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I can't argue with the stats. <laughs> the stats are there. But I just, I'm sitting there scratching my head. I can't work out quite how this happens. But it does. It's, so, a, it's a, We need to be careful not to confuse the two things between unequal pay and gender pay gap. So unequal pay is when man and women, probably don't need to explain this, but man and a woman do exactly the same job and are paid a different amount, which is illegal um, yeah. according to the Unequal Pay Act. Um, the gender pay gap is is more of a, you used the word legacy before, a legacy as a result of lots of different factors we've kind of talked about today. Um, it's hard, you're right, that was really surprising to me, that particular point around three years into your career. So that will have a lot to do with negotiating salaries it will have a lot to do with um you know people moving around to different roles mm. to do with but, bias but in terms of hiring issues, processes those legacy issues are a potential explanation for the gender pay gap later on in the careers mm. aren't they but at that early stage <laughs> well yeah because if, yeah, if you're already behind and then you you know take a year off for yeah, maternity exactly. potentially yeah, miss, okay. so just example yeah, yeah exas- okay. exacebates yeah, it okay. but all right. So just moving away from um, the, the gender pay gap for, for a little while, just talking about your, your career there, you, you've worked for two big established agencies. And um, it's interesting that you've chosen that as your, your career path as opposed to, I don't know, g- going away and, and setting up on your own as an independent shop or something like that. I'm just, um, you know, there's no right or wrong in that decision, but I'm just intrigued that... You've you've decided to write. I, I basically I like working in big agencies, um, and I'm just could just talk to me a bit about why you've done that. Was it a conscious thing? Was it just something that good choices kept happening, <laughs> so you stayed? What what was the, I'm not the sure rationale? It, I'm not sure it was it was conscious. And actually, you know, both Red and Golin are big agencies now. But when I started at both of them, they they weren't. I mean. Red. Yeah, okay. I worked at Red in um, what us Red alumni refer to as the old days when um, the agency was um, over in Wigmore Street. And, you know, it was still relatively small, um, very innovative agency doing work that nobody else was doing. It's been um, a model that's been much copied over the years. So it was um, it was an incredible place to work and, and to start my career. And, you know, Golim was similar with both agencies. I've kind of been lucky enough to go on a real journey of transformation yeah, so, um, with so, both of them, you, which I found really interesting, yeah, I think. But That's, you didn't... Good point. So on, on both agencies, you didn't join... A, they weren't small agencies, but you didn't join big, established firms in London. All right, Golim was a big firm in, internationally. Yeah. But, that's a, but then you... I mean... I, 
<laughs> maybe you're the secret source that makes these things yeah, grow. Definitely but, um, but it's but yeah. So therefore, that's uh, you ended up at big, big, big established agencies rather than joining them in the first place, which is um, yeah. uh, slightly even more surprising. Therefore, that having done that, you decided to stay because on both occasions you joined a fairly small operation and and it grew. But um, yeah, I mean, I do, I do, I like. I like the sense of working in a team. I think that that's something that I really, really enjoy. I loved the, you know, the team spirit when I was working at Red. I love that. It's an agency I still have a huge amount of respect and fondness for. And the same at, the same at Golin. I, I do like working in that, that big structure, um, the kind of resources that you're able to yeah. unlock and what it enables you to do. I mean, not, not saying you can't do that within a more entrepreneurial organisation, um, but I think that's certainly what I've really enjoyed in, in the last few years, particularly being MD, is being able to take all of the the kind of great legacy and equity in the Golan brand. But I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to put my own stamp on it and to be able to build that brand in, in my own way with a lot of things that I feel very passionate about and want to change, not only within Golan, but within within the industry. And that's been really exciting. But on the, on the client side, I, I don't know whether that was behind what you're saying now. Are you... Is it the breadth of work? Do you think you get a, a, a deeper breadth of work working for big agencies or or, or not? I don't. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, okay. one of the things and we always kind of joke about this, and so we sort of do a weekly staff meeting, like many people, and kind of wrap up what we've done this week. And I mean, the the variety is is just it's staggering. You know, we'll be working on, you know, perhaps a a very complex um, launch for one of our, you know. B2B enterprise clients, um, or kind of complex content strategy piece, right through to, you know, doing something with A-list talent in Cannes. Um, and I kind of, I love that, the breadth of the different work that we get to do. And, you know, I'm a consumer person by, you know, start of my career. But that is one of the great things about my job is being able to work with clients in lots of different sectors and actually often kind of cross-pollinate between those those different sectors, um, which I find really interesting. There's more there's more commonality than difference often. I guess there is a school of thought that suggests that uh, I, I don't think you need to be a huge agent to do it, but there is a with the, the increasing um, well breadth again, I suppose, of, of skill sets that you need to have a successful public relations engagement influencer campaign. You need to be a certain size of agency, to, frankly, to be able to afford to employ those the, the, the different elements that you need to that from a analytics to creative to video whatever else um so there's a there is a potentially a a, a, a competitive advantage there of being a certain size um i'm not suggesting you to be a 150 person agency but it's hard to compete against that presumably if you're a, a 10 person agency isn't it because you you haven't got that that breadth of skills at your disposal to do the things you need to do um i guess so i mean you probably know more about this ben than i do but i would you know, certainly my senses of smaller agencies do tend to specialise um, because you're right, it, yeah. is, it is harder to build those resources across um, lots of different disciplines and, and, and sectors when, when you're starting out. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably a fair point. OK. Um, so what's next for Bibby Hilton? What's, what's happening next? A <laughs> uh, big glass of wine in the sun now. <laughs> um oh, we're down in this dungeon. Yeah, here. we are. It might be raining outside now. But... <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, I mean, I've kind of just started an exciting new role with my women in PR yeah. um, 
hat on and I'm really excited about that really really excited we've got big shoes to fill after Mary Wenman but um, we've got great stuff planned so how, how long is your term there what is it is it there <laughs> I think it's usually two years okay Right. So, um, so I'm yeah. always amazed, and it, I think it's great. Uh, you know, all credit to, to people like you do it because, it, you, you know, you've got you've got children, you've got um, you, you've got a very busy day job, um, and then you take on a a, a voluntary role for for, for you know a, a, a trade body or I don't you know women in PR and things like that. I mean, it's a it's an intriguing mo- motivation that that you have to do that. What is it? It's just a wanting to put a bit back. Is that is that why you do it? I, I have to. <laughs> well, lots of presence of trade body. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, you're not the only one. Not Don't get me wrong. Body. Well, you know what I mean. It's it's a, <laughs> but it's a it's it takes quite a bit of time. It does to, take. You a have lot to time. put a lot in. It does take. And a lot you can't of time. not put a lot in because it's yeah. You know, you've been there's a lot to do, and it's. I'm just intrigued by the motivation of doing it. What what is what, what's what's well, it first, all about? First, I should say. I mean, it's not it's not just me. We have no. a brilliant committee, um, brilliant vice president, uh, Claire Foster, who does a huge, huge amount of work, very um, committed to women in PR. And we've got a brilliant um, committee. Some people have been on the committee for a while and we just had some new um, women join. And they are all people who devote a huge amount of time, who all have busy, busy jobs, um, in many cases, families and other commitments. Um, and actually that part of it is great, you know, getting to make new friends, meet new people. Right. Um, has so it's been, a community element. It is definitely well. a real community element to it, and that, that's what's made it really enjoyable. Um, and it's, I guess, why did I really want to do it? Because I genuinely am really passionate about lots of topics we talked about this afternoon yeah. because I really care about that. I'm, you know, getting to an age where I really want to feel like I'm able to make a difference and make some change. And I think one of the things I really want to do with women in PR is ensure that we are actually changing something in the industry. And we've just been working on tightening our, our kind of mission, if you like, that, yes, we have lots of events. Yes, we are about facilitating networking. But actually, our number one goal is to address that that drop-off curve we talked about earlier in the conversation and to get more women um, into leadership roles in our industry. And everything we do is now really focused on that in a single-minded way. So I guess if I could turn around in a couple of years and say, in some small way, with you know me and the team that, that we work with, the Women in PR, we've managed to address that statistic, then... I would feel happy. It's probably going to take longer than two years, but... I'm sure you make a difference. Bibi, we're out of time. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.